welcome to Thrive in Design, a podcast about making money in beautiful interiors as it relates to product-based businesses in the interior design industry. Each week, we'll discuss innovative strategies on how to approach product development and design sales in a shifting market. I'm your host, Nicole Lachey-Ben. I'm thrilled to be a brand ambassador for Hero Flooring. Hero Flooring was founded in 2014 with a clear focus on creating the ultimate client experience. Hero Flooring is a national brand of high-performance floor coverings, which includes carpet tile, Hero rubber and Nike grind tiles, LVT, engineered wood, and turf. For more information about Hero Flooring, head to heroflooring.com and tell them Nicole from Thrive and Design sent you. Now, let's get back into this insightful episode. Welcome back for another episode of the Thrive and Design podcast. Today, we have a lovely guest named Dina Prastos. Dina Prastos is the first waterfront architect, trailblazing a new category at Indigo River, a women-owned transdisciplinary design firm. A leading authority in New York Harbor, they focus on progressive waterfront architecture, resiliency, and climate adaption solutions that seamlessly transcend boundaries. Waterfront architect, civil engineer, futurist, climate adaptations expert, and entrepreneur, Dina is driven to transform the built world at the water's edge. She is fueled by overlapping of design, technology, community, and nature. Welcome to the show, Dina. Hi, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure to be here. Yes, I'm really excited about this, mostly because I used to live in New York. And so like living on that island and being surrounded by water, I was always intrigued by just how people design buildings to like take in the environment surrounding. So I'm super excited to talk to you today. Awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, certainly a a unique focus of ours to focus on the waterfront edge condition, but it is uh, a specialized niche and, and we enjoy focusing on it. All right. So let's dive into it and let's start by talking about your journey. Can you tell us about your journey and what inspired you to start Indigo River and what's the story behind the name? Sure. So I, I'll start with kind of my academic background. I studied architecture, undergrad, civil engineering, masters. And then in terms of my professional background, I worked in construction first for about six years. And then I worked for an engineering firm before full circle, making it back to architecture and design. When I was kind of finishing up the minimum requirement that I needed to become a licensed architect working under another architect, I had observed just from my career and my the exposure of you know projects that I was on early in my career, many of which were waterfront infrastructure projects. I noticed a niche and a gap kind of to be able to fill. And that was the focus with Indigo River was to fill that gap. And the gap is design-led focus on waterfront infrastructure. And so the types of projects that we work on include port facilities, ferry terminals, marinas, any edge condition, anything where the natural, whether it's a river or sea, is meeting man-made. And so that sometimes is a bulkhead or a seawall or a wharf or a key or a pile-supported platform. And so a lot of those typologies are focused more heavily on from the engineering realm, but not necessarily from the architect's vantage. And so that was the opportunity that we saw. And just by default of working on the waterfront, it happens to be that it is one of our more vulnerable typologies in terms of climate change and sea level rise and flooding. And so the focus and the emphasis right now kind of in our government also to strengthen some of our infrastructure also lent itself well to focusing on this as a key area of operations. That's really interesting. And so I'm sure the waterfront and this specific niche impacted the name for your business in that way? 
It did, although originally Indigo River was meant to be kind of a placeholder name. I was filing with the state and just needed something. And I was, you know, overthinking as we often do as designers. And I couldn't come up with the right thing. And my husband just said, you know, pick something that makes you smile. Just what is it? We'll change it. You'll have a, you know, DBA doing business as down the road. But like, look on your phone. What's your screensaver? And it was a picture of my dog, Indigo, and the river. We live on the Hudson River. And so that was meant to be the temporary name and it ended up sticking and we've run with it. Yeah, well, it, it gives off an eclectic, artistic feel, but it also ties into the work that you do. So I love that. Yeah, I mean, now I can go back and layer some more meaning into it, but certainly indigo and kind of the ambiguity of, you know, is it blue, is it purple and, and river, just kind of, you know, water bodies that we work on and kind of a, a larger parallel of the types of project and the type of people that we hire kind of feeding something larger. And so certainly it's resonated and we've kept it for that reason. Yeah. So you talked a little bit about how the business has evolved or especially your personal interest and how you've gotten more technical and found this specific niche within architecture. So tell us more about that journey from like inception of Indigo River when you filed, you know, your company with the state to like where you are now. Share more about that journey. Sure. So I, I think in our early days, we knew there was an opportunity. I have a partner. We had a couple key hires early on, largely people who had worked with in, you know, past companies that we were, you know, like-minded individuals that appreciated the type of work that we work on, which is, you know, really that fusion of, of nature and man-made. And so the focus early on was, you know, similar typologies, whether it's a pier structure or a marina or a port, but really layering in more the design lens. So it's not just problem solving, it's the opportunities that come through seeing constraints as opportunities. And so we have hired and balanced out our team, not only to be engineers, which we have many different engineers from marine and dive engineers and coastal and construction and geotechnical. We have a lot of different engineering disciplines, but we've also really rounded out and balanced the design side. So we have traditionally trained architects. We have naval architects that focus on floating assets. We have landscape architects. And we also have quite a few planners that specifically focus on climate adaptation and looking at different scales. And so we're not, you know, only one thing. And we we truly are multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary in that many of us have different backgrounds, not only as designers, but often as owners rep or working on the construction side. And so we really do kind of speak in think in the different languages that, you know, really make a successful project come together. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I want to learn more about your process, right? Because I come from an interior design background. So it really has to do with like after the architect, the engineer has done all the work or maybe like come towards the end of that process. But really those two things go hand in hand. So I really want to learn more about your creative process at Indigo River. So to start, how do you approach the creative process, especially when starting on a brand new project? So I, I love that you drew the parallel to interior design because I feel like so much, and you you mentioned, you know, traveling to New York and observing what that waterfront condition is. And it's very rare that we ever get, you know, a virgin untouched site. Much of what we inherit is something that you know, whether it needs to be rehabilitated or it needs to be overhauled and upgraded, there's some kind of existing condition that that's really where our work starts. And it's usually not a natural condition. It's usually something that was man-made prior and it's, you know, exceeded its design life. And so when we approach a new project, the first stage really is a heavy due diligence. Actually, I'll step back for a second and just note that 
part of working on the waterfront is understanding the different site conditions and site constraints that are inherent in working on the waterfront, meaning there are tidal swings, there are different kind of site conditions that don't exist on upland sites, and they don't exist necessarily in interior spaces alone. And so understanding first that traditionally for an architect, a client brings a, you know, a site survey, a, you know, a selected site and a selected program. And sometimes we'll actually get involved even before that phase where maybe they have a program, but they don't have a site. And so we'll help with the site selection to make sure that they're selecting a site that is optimal to their intended program. Or sometimes they have a site, but they don't know how to program it and what the highest and best use is. So we'll sometimes get involved even at that early stage kind of advisory consulting level. And then let's say someone does bring us a project that is a, there's an existing condition that we go out and inspect and do a heavy, you know, due diligence to understand what is there. And that's a means to get us to establish a design criteria that we understand now what the client wants to do with the site. We understand what the constraints of the existing site are, and we start to marry those two and set goals for the project. And so that's a really probably the most important step is calibrating what those goals are for the project. And that includes, you know, what the client's budget is so that we're not, you know, getting started designing something that just is not affordable in the end. And so early on, we'll work hand in hand with the client, with stakeholders to understand what their budget is, what their operations teams look like on the waterfront and establish, you know, actionable goals that are realistic. And then from there, the design fund starts. But those constraints setting up early on are really important for us. Yeah. And I find that that research stage is really important in all phases of design or all types of design, whether it's architecture, the engineering, the site planning, the interior design, or even in a lot of the work that I do with strategy with my clients. It all starts with the research and understanding what are we walking into right now, (laughs) right? What are the current problems? What are the pain points? What is your vision of where you see this going so that you can take all of that data and boil it down to create like a plan moving forward. So I love that that is really the basis for any type of design that you're working on. Absolutely. Yeah. So can you share a memorable project that you have loved to work on and share this design approach and the principles that you had at Indigo River? Sure. One of our projects that I'll talk about maybe because it's under construction. So we've gone through several phases already and it's you know almost occupiable, but Early on, when we launched, we were approached largely for certainly our expertise in marine engineering and the regulatory permitting that layers over that, because it is a very stringent regulatory environment that is nuanced and specialized. And so just by default, working on the waterfront, that's part of our process to kind of think in those terms of what the regulators will be looking for and making sure that we're balancing the client goals with you know what is feasible, not only technically, but in, in terms of the regulation. And so... We got brought into a film studio in Queens to work on their shoreline. And initially, they wanted to make it enable recreational access for the public to go down and to the water. And some early due diligence findings, we found that was not something that we would recommend for that particular site in that particular location. And so we approached the rest of the design slightly differently, and, and that was fine. But what I love about the project was that it opened up, again, because of our work and our comfort around the water, working in on with water and water forces, it became natural for the upland building when there was concerns because it is in a floodplain, how the flood mitigation strategy would work. They ended up expanding our scope to include that aspect of the design. And so we ended up working beyond just the waterfront, but upland a bit to coordinate with the the design teams, the engineers, the architects of record, the other specialty consultants to coordinate that flood mitigation strategy. And that really 
in terms of Indigo River and our kind of expansion and evolution was a key project in asserting our agency in the climate adaptation space and particularly for flood mitigation strategies. And so on this project, we did our research with the, you know, category one, category three, category five storms would do to the site, what the existing site looked like, what the proposed design looked like, and how we could strategize some different flood mitigation strategies to better the project in the end, not only to meet code, but really to secure a safe space for the building and for the operations team. So you said a lot there that we need to. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) Because this actually comes up in a lot of the conversations that I have with so many different people within the design and architecture industry. That's climate change. It's flooding, how it's impacting the built environment and architecture structures. And just some people think like things are myths. It's so many things. So as we are in this like ever-changing climate and we have to think about the environment, the environmental impact, flooding, hurricanes, and all of those things, how do you stay innovative and informed about all of this information that you then have to incorporate into your design? So I'll say for us, we maybe have an inherent advantage in that we are so comfortable working with the water. So whatever that water level is, it's just a data point for us and it affects our future decisions. But it's, I'd I'd say early on, the awareness around what the, certainly the base flood elevation is, certainly the design flood elevation is, but also not only looking at historical weather patterns, but the future projections, which are far exceeding what our code was written to regulate. And so that's something where it really is a mindset. And sometimes not every client wants that. Not every client wants to exceed code because it, it often means, you know, front end dollars, you know, increasing, but it's at the benefit of the back end of, you know, the return on investment for, you know, building, whether it's 12 inches or 16 inches higher than the code requires. But now that next, you know, unforeseen storm and surge event on a king tide, you don't have any damage or you're be able to get back to operations that much quicker. And so there's certainly this awareness component that I would say our team has ingrained in their design process and sharing that. And so it's not, you know, as designers, we we always you know think we know best, but it's obviously a conversation and a negotiation with what is technically feasible, what is, you know, in terms of the regulation feasible, what in terms of operations and maintenance is feasible for the owner and the operations team. And so it's really a level setting of kind of educating the team on what the risks are and what risks they're comfortable with or what risks we can as a design team mitigate against. Gotcha. And for those who focus on interiors that are listening, is there any information that you wish an interiors team would know as you pass that building or site off to the interior designer or interior architect working on a project? Absolutely. So I I mean, every building that we work on with a flood mitigation strategy has interior components, obviously. And so there are early broad strokes decision making of what kind of program we put in a flood zone. And so in the the example of the film studio, we largely programmed it to be parking where, you know, in an extreme circumstance and a hazard environment that the cars could be moved and the parking area could be flooded. That wasn't the case with the entire building, but probably 75 percent of it. There's another facility that we work in in Westchester Library where the children's area is in a flood zone and it's been inundated several times. And so there are only so many times that you can, you know, go back to the insurance and make a claim and put the same materials back in place and then only to have to upgrade them again at the next event. And so some of what we'll do is advising on the interiors and the materiality of what gets put back in to make it 
more of a wet flood proof space. So the difference between dry flood proofing and wet flood proofing has to do with the materiality selected. There certainly are some constraints in terms of what can be programmed in those spaces. But just practically thinking, if there's a space that whether or not kind of historically it's been flooded and regardless of how it's used, if we do go to make improvements in that space and we do it through the lens of kind of a realistic this space is likely to be inundated again with water. And why would we put back, you know, expensive high-end materials that are not resistant to the water? Why not put back in materials that can withstand the environment of, you know, being inundated with water and move forward that way? And so sometimes it is a higher upfront cost to do that. But on the back end, the benefit is that you're not, you know, tearing out, replacing time and again, every storm. So articulating the benefit of that, putting the dollars upfront is really important. And speaking of dollars, I know that sometimes cuts into sustainability efforts, right? Everybody is talking about sustainability. I've seen, I've probably seen people talking about sustainability for the past 15 years in some form or fashion, whether it's the architecture side or interiors. So can you share insights into the role of sustainability and eco-conscious design in your work and how you're thinking about a more sustainable future? Absolutely. And I love I love talking about sustainability because it really does go hand in hand with resiliency. And I would say more directly, our work focuses on resiliency, but I love to talk about the relationship between them because in our industry, sometimes the two words are used interchangeably and they have different meanings. And so when we talk about sustainability, we're talking about mankind's impact on the planet. And when we're talking about resiliency, we're talking about nature's impact on mankind and, and the man-made built endeavors. And so for the waterfront, oftentimes we're looking at, you know, is it resilient? Will it withstand harsh weather patterns in extreme environments? And there is a relationship to sustainability because even if you build the most sustainable piece of infrastructure, if it's not built resiliently and it fails in, you know, 10, 20 years when it should have lasted 50, 70, you're starting from scratch to rebuild it. And the carbon footprint of rebuilding that project in a shorter period than its intended design life is great. And so it wasn't really sustainable if it's not resilient. And so there's that relationship that we look at often enough. And when we spec our projects, we certainly look to sustainably source materials. We look to repurpose and adaptively reuse things where we can, but also balancing that with what is resilient and will it last. Yeah. I love how you illustrated that relationship between sustainability and resiliency. I feel like that needs to be like a diagram that is referenced back to in a lot of different design processes and whomever you're partnering with or collaborating with on the project so that everybody can be on the same page in the scope of work. So as we move into talking about like collaboration and how that plays a role in your design process, can you discuss some key partnerships or collaborations that has shaped your firm's work? Sure, absolutely. So when we launched early on, I mean, we were two people, then four people, now we're nearly 20 people, but we were looking to keep an emphasis and keep a focus on the relationships that we we already had made throughout our careers and looking to leverage those, but for you know mutually beneficial outcomes. And so one of the things and one of the strategies in launching Indigo River, and we have a couple partner firms as well, and the idea was that much of our work is public-facing work, and we do have governmental clients, and those government clients, particularly in New York and federally as well, other states as well, all have goals for women-owned businesses, minority-owned businesses, veteran-owned businesses. And so we have looked to empower partners from within, and we've launched kind of sister companies 
that have different ownership structures. Indigo River is a women-owned firm. We do look to satisfy goals on women-owned criteria for government projects. As I mentioned, we also have a veteran-owned firm, minority-owned firm. And so we team together, often with the same larger firms, larger primes. We've also you know, been primes on our own projects, whether you know, private developer-led or even government-led, where we can leverage those relationships and keep the high level of you know, principles working in the day-to-day, not just kind of managing from behind the scenes, but using our expertise, using our knowledge to kind of permeate from a consultant level, but on these higher exposure projects than we would have been able to get, you know, out of the gate day one. And I know you just mentioned a couple of other locations outside of New York. Does your work or your process vary depending on where in the world the waterfront is located? I'm just curious. Our process is often the same, but we look at different conditions and different constraints depending on what the water body is, whether or not there's a freeze-thaw cycle, what the wave action is, what the climate is, you know, coastal or a lake or a stream or a river. And so understanding the different types of water that we work with, I feel like is more important than only where it's located. Certainly when we get a project out of state, we do our due diligence. Often, you know, a lot of the same resources that we look into, but it just happens to be a different site. Very important is visiting the site. So that's something that we'll usually do up front just to get kind of boots on the ground or a diver in the water to understand what those constraints are. (laughs) Yes. We have a professional engineer diver that often does inspections underwater. Yeah. Okay. So that leads me to another question (laughs) off topic, but okay. You just mentioned a diver in the water is required to get some information for these waterfront projects. Like, what else is there that's unexpected for somebody who knows nothing about a waterfront project, especially from your point of view? What else is there that you would love for people to know that is unexpected that goes into these projects? Sure. So we have, like I mentioned, we have a professional engineer diver that will go down and do underwater inspections um, as important as it is to you know inspect what you can see visually with the eye above the water to be able to touch it and, and feel it equally important, if not more, and understand what's going on below the water surface all the way down to the mud line. And so that's certainly an area that we have internal to our company and focus on. I mentioned before, we have naval architects that focus on floating assets. So it's not only much of, you know, architects and designers and most traditional, you know, civil engineers will focus on fixed pieces that are not moving. When we look at floating assets, whether it's a floating landing or a barge or a floating terminal, there is this interface of fixed and floating that is always in motion, especially if it's in you know tidal area where you have to consider the range of motion. And what I mentioned before about kind of bringing a design lens to the waterfront and to the typologies that we work on, the engineers have a lot of guidelines and rules of thumb. You know, if you're looking at a floating asset and a fixed access point, what that range of motion can be for the gangway, meaning how steep or how shallow it is. And architects think of that experience for the end user. A little bit differently. We're not looking at a, you know, a standard or a guideline and just checking the box and making sure that we fit within it. We're thinking through, well, what does this mean for someone in a wheelchair? What does this mean for someone that's blind? And so we start to really layer in other pieces of design between and for that dynamic environment where we have fixed and floating, where we have wet and dry to really start to think kind of beyond the, the traditional, assume that it's a static condition that is always the same. Yeah. I'm really blown away, especially by the diver. Like, (laughs) I'm going to put that on my son's vision board of like, this is a a career opportunity. (laughs) Absolutely. More more important as the uh, climate adaptation conversations increase. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. That's amazing. And also just thinking about all the different 
people who will be in the environment and all of their different evil bodiedness. You have to consider all of that as you put into your design. Yeah. And I'll say just kind of in terms of, you know, traditional PPE, you go to a construction site for, you know, traditional designer and you might have a vest and steel toe boots and a hard hat, safety glasses. All right. We have those two. But we also are often wearing either a float coat or a life vest or a, you know, waders where we're going in the water. Even if we're not diving, we might be going waist deep in the water and mucking around. And so our PPE looks a bit differently. And also our site access often looks differently. I have, you know, a paddleboard and a kayak that fits in my car that I can go to a site and jump in the water to go under a pier and look at something. Or I can throw on my waders and walk and kind of scramble around the shoreline to understand, you know, what is it? Is it mud? Is it rock? What's going on? If I can't see it and it's high tide or something like that, even just factoring in what the tidal cycles are for a site visit, whether high tide or strategically going at low tide to understand and be able to visually inspect more. And so slightly different. And I'll even add sometimes, you know, we'll go by boat to sites or to understand what the relationship is, if it's a, a ferry landing or a marina, kind of what the travel times are, what the ferry ridership might look like. So same principles, but different in execution on the waterfront. Okay. Oh my gosh, this has been amazing. I've learned so much and I'm sure everybody else has learned so much. And I feel like, Dina, you guys deserve like superhero keeps. <laughs> Thank or you. just the research base to understand everything that needs to inform your design process. So what's next for Indigo River? What's on the horizon for future projects and goals for your firm? So we are six years old. Every year we do a kind of state of the companies where we very democratically source, you know, feedback from our, our team members of, you know, what's working well, what's not working well, what were our goals last year, how did we stack up against them? And so we're coming up on that for year six and, or sorry, year seven. And our growth strategy has been kind of, you know, birthed in, in engineering, expanding into architecture and planning. And so an, a natural segue for us, looking at some of the different opportunities on the wall really center around a lot of renewable energy focuses, uh, particularly with offshore wind and battery storage on barges. And so both of those have, you know, marine and waterfront architecture components. So that's an area where we are rapidly expanding and growing and not only on the technical side, but also in terms of communicating to the communities what the benefits are, what the risks are to be able to really have uh, valuable stakeholder and community engagement sessions. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for sharing and sharing all of those insights. I'm sure that everybody will be flooding you with questions <laughs> after listening to this. So where can the audience find you online or connect with you? Thank you so much for having me. Um, in terms of reaching out, I am active on LinkedIn, just under my name, Dina Prastos, also on Instagram under my name uh, or through our website. We have a portal you can reach out or just info at indigoriver.com. All right. Thank you again. Thank you. Thanks for joining us this week on Thrive in Design. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Thrive in Design. And for more strategies on how your product company can innovate in the interior design industry, head to training.thriveindesign.co. As always, subscribe to the show to catch every new episode and leave us a review so we can continue to create captivating content. See you next week.